Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I'm joined by two guests from Intelligence Squared US, host and moderator John Donvan and CEO Clea Connor. Intelligence Squared is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization debate series working to restore civility, reasoned analysis, and constructive public discourse to today's media landscape. Founded in 2006, Intelligence Squared addresses a fundamental problem in America, the extreme polarization of our nation and our politics. The debate series is broadcast on more than 250 public radio stations nationwide and is also an award-winning podcast. The host and moderator is John Donvan. John is an author and a correspondent for ABC News. He has served as ABC's White House correspondent, along with postings in Moscow, London, and Jerusalem. John is also a four-time Emmy winner and was a National Magazine Award finalist in 2010. Clea Connor is a media executive with 15 years of experience producing high-quality intellectual discourse for a range of distribution platforms. As Intelligence Squared's first CEO, Clea is responsible for leading growth, programming, and strategy for the nation's premier debate platform. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, follow, and share. And now on to my conversation with John Donvan and Clea Connor. Well, hello and welcome to Making Media Now. Clea Connor and John Donvan. Clea is the CEO of Intelligence Squared US, and John is the moderator and the host of Intelligence Squared US. John has been working in that capacity since 2008, and Clea is the actually the first CEO uh, of Intelligence Squared US uh, in its existence, and uh, I'm gonna leave it to the CEO to tell our listeners what Intelligence Squared US is all about. All right. Well, well, thank you first, Michael, for having us on the program. Really excited to be here and join you and learn from you in this conversation. Um, so Intelligence Squared, we're we're uh, consider ourselves America's debate series. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit organization. We're we're really dedicated to elevating the level of public discourse in the United States. And for us, that means that we're pursuing that mission through a series of debates. We're we're really believe that bringing two opposing points of view together to compare and contrast ideas is one of the best ways to learn deeply about some challenging topics and confront issues that you might even be talking about in your day to day life. Um, it's a model for how to disagree well, how to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, and we think it's it's a way of of learning, understanding and just giving us more light into a lot of these uh, topics around us right now. And John, how did you come into the Intelligence Square fold? Many, many years ago, the show used to uh, 
when it started in 2006 and for the first two years of its existence, they had a different moderator every time. And, you know, people like uh, Robert Siegel of NPR and um, well, a, a bunch of names that you would recognize. And um, but they rotated. It was a different person every time. And I wanted to get into that rotation. So I started calling and and sort of bugging the then executive producer, Dana Wolf, to uh, let me have a crack at it. And one day she called me and said, how would you like to do all of them? And I said, that would be great, but why? And she said, well, we need somebody, we, we, we can't keep teaching moderators how to moderate every single episode. We need somebody to come in, learn how to do it and stick with it. Yep. So I very, very quickly said, yes, I would be delighted in doing that. And then I came in and I I did have to learn how to do it. Actually, I got better over time, but um, they, I got the chance to uh, to make a few mistakes and be not great at it for the first few and get better and better. That learn how to do it part is um, is more complicated than one might think. Not just the not just the role of being the moderator and the host and keeping the conversation going, but but the the series actually applies a a format, um, a more of a much more of a sort of a structured debate format. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? I would say the core of the of the structure that we insist upon is that there is a single motion or proposition or question that the debaters are there to discuss in a very focused way. And one side has to prove their point on the question and the other side has to take the opposite position or nearly opposite position. It's not always directly opposite. And they have to, they have to provide evidence for taking the position that they do. So the, and, and, and they can't wander too far off topic and they can't come in with sort of nonsense evidence and they can't come in and try to win by attacking their opponents. They actually have to address the idea that's at the core of the discussion. And so that, that's the core, that's the core thing that we insist upon. And then around that, we have structure in the form of um, timed rounds. Uh, there's a, an opening round that where each debater can make a statement for several minutes without being interrupted. At the end, they get to have another period of uninterrupted summary. In the middle, they they can mix it up more, but again, nobody can really dominate. That's where I come in as a moderator is to make sure nobody runs away with the conversation. But the core, core thing is you're going to say something. The other side is going to say nearly the opposite or the opposite. And then you have to prove it. You have to prove that you're right. Mm -hmm. And in your role as as moderator, um, do you also have to make sure that the participants are kind of abiding by those rules as you as you move along through the yeah, conversations? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the key thing. And I, I most of the time, most of the debaters do, partly because I would say that I've told them ahead of time that if they don't, I'm going to call them out for it. And nobody wants to have that happen. And I do call people out from time to time. And I think over the years, I got a reputation for calling people out. And um, and I found it interesting that um, there were some pretty big personalities that I took on uh, and had to steer or or, you know, uh, in a in a way on, on the fly critique the way that they were taking the argument. And I always expected them to tell me to take a jump in the lake and, and none of them ever has, um, which I think has something to do in my view, it had to do with all of this happening in front of a live audience and they didn't want to look like jerks. And, um, and so that was a kind of a power that I could harness in my favor, but, but yeah, I did have to, I had to keep people, especially the rule of avoiding personal attacks. Um, not because we're 
you know, namby pamby and everybody's sensitive. It's not, that's not the reason we really took an issue with the personal attacks, although that is an issue. There's the civility point, but it's just also a weak form of argument. You're not proving that your opponent's ideas are wrong by improve by, by insisting that your opponent is a bad person. That's not getting to whether the idea is right or wrong. And, you know, frankly, that approach runs counter to what so many people have come to expect from any type of a a format that's going to air one opinion and then another opinion. I I think back to the um, uh, the CNN show uh, Crossfire from, you know, back whenever that was 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, purportedly it was going to be a debate, but it was really the antithesis of informed debate. And it was a couple of people with opinion shouting at each other. It was terrible. That was terrible. I, and I, for, for years, I would say, and, and I think Clay also, that what we're not is we're, we're not crossfire. So let's start by saying we're the opposite of crossfire. You're the anti-crossfire. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have a little bit. It's not even just crossfire. I mean, I think look at the presidential debates. Most most people have a point of reference for debate that, you know, these these broadcasts nationally, you see them, you know, a couple times a year or just during the presidential election. And they're not good examples of what a debate is. And so we're we're very much about reforming the idea that a debate is a joint press conference, like John mentioned, that is, you know, fueled by personal attacks, that is all about ad hominem, you know, replies that um, is avoidant. It, it you know, you don't actually hear these two candidates take on each other's ideas. You just hear two people tear down, you know, each other. Right. And it's just not a it's not a healthy way to actually have a conversation. Um, so we really strive to be the antidote of that, you know, as well and really go into rigorous um, you know, argumentation. Yeah. And political debates were moving in the direction of m- more of a primetime TV show for. Uh, for, for a while, the uh, the low point, perhaps, you know, was the 2015, 2016 debates uh, among the 17 Republicans at one point and obviously Trump taking all the oxygen out of the air. But, you know, that that model has continued most recently. I believe it was in Ohio, uh, the um, senatorial debate. You had two guys stand up on the stage and essentially just uh uh, go f- literally face to face as if who was going to throw the first punch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it. They can't even really call themselves d- debates at, at that point. And, mm-hmm. y- you know, uh, Claire, when I was looking at your biography, you you've also developed a program called Up for Debate. And that's debatable uh, uh, as television programs on Bloomberg and PBS. And you also produced the first debate between artificial intelligence and a human debater with partnership (laughs) in partnership with IBM's historic project debater. I'm curious what, what happened in your life that you gravitated so strongly toward, you know, formal and nuanced and intelligent debate. I think, um, you know what I, you know, in full disclosure, I was not a debate kid. Um, in high school or, or my background academically, I was actually a band kid. I was drum major of the marching band. I was the flute player in school. Um, but I did intersect a lot with debate team and did some debating as well, but it wasn't until, you know, I was living in New York city of a background, uh, in marketing. Um, I was working with a lot of journalists, best-selling authors, public officials at a speaker's bureau, 
And, um, you know, you're promoting a lot of different books and ideas and kind of creating this marketplace of ideas in a company like that. Um, and I attended uh, an Intelligence Square debate where our author, PJ O'Rourke, who recently passed away, and he was just an absolutely brilliant thinker, yeah. um, extraordinary satirist, uh, just adore him and, and loved working with him. He was debating on the two-party system. And I attended this debate and I was floored by uh, how smart it was, what a departure it was from all the other things I'd been seeing and really how fresh it was. You're talking about a format that's, you know, 200 years old and somehow John, you know, makes it so accessible and exciting and fun and entertaining. And he was moderating that evening. Um, and I was really inspired by, by uh, the model and started doing a lot of research, um, applied for the head of marketing position. And that's really where I started 10 years ago with Intelligence Squared um, and our executive producer at the time, Dana Wolf. So, you know, it, it kind of took on a, a, a form. My interest in it really blossomed when I saw what a problem that we have in, in America, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the, how divided that we are and how extreme and entrenched our positions have become. Um, this is a, an unhealthy situation for us to be in. It's affecting the universities. It's affecting the workplace. Um, it's affecting families. It's, you know, it's now kind of at an, an inflection point, I think you could say, um, and we're trying to figure out how to, how to problem solve even more, but I'm really inspired by that kind of more the purpose behind the organization and think that the, the results speak for themselves. People, yeah, people funny. change you, their minds into this, this program. Yeah. And I want, I want to get into that in terms of how you, uh, how you sort of track listeners, um, uh, gravitating toward who made their case better, you know, which side and how minds are changed. But you, you mentioned high school debate and more formal debate. And if I'm not mistaken, in a more formal debate setting, the debaters actually are expected like on the drop of a, on the turn of a dime to be able to argue both sides of the argument. So it's really about being, having the ability to be in command of the information to further the argument for a particular side. And John, I'm wondering when uh, you're having conversations with, with guests, do they feel like they're in an environment where they know that, you know, sort of uh, stock answers and talking points aren't going to cut it. And so they, uh, they uh, they feel more like they've got to be bringing their A game for Intelligence Squared. Uh, not everybody, not all the time. Um, <laughs> there there are some folks who kind of are used to just having a supportive audience in front of them, and they don't realize until they're on the stage that there's actually somebody on the other side who's intelligently disagreeing with them, and you can somewhat see them panic. And in those cases especially in the earlier days, uh, there were there were debaters who had come in with two or three polished phrases, talking points that they would start to repeat over and over. And that was one of the first times I kind of stepped up and started calling people out saying, you know, you've said that over and over. You're not addressing what your opponent's saying. Are you, are you conceding the point or are you going to argue? Oh, wow. And there was there was one time a very well-known American broadcaster came for a debate and um, <laughs> he uh he actually, uh, I think, hadn't had accepted the booking without really thinking through what he was getting into. And 
we took him to the theater with the other debaters and we walked them through. Here's where you sit. Here's where you stand. And I saw him look out across the audience and it kind of dawned on him that, oh, my God, I'm actually in a debate. I, I got to be better than I was planning. And he disappeared for about 15 minutes. And I went backstage and found him with his face three inches from the wall, standing to it, standing right up to the wall, but he was talking to it and he was like wagging his finger at it. And he was like, he was now rehearsing his debate in a way to win. He was like, really like figuring out how do I do this by, by gesticulating and, and, and talking to the wall that he was going to get himself up for this. And then he came out and he did really, really well. But I think, I think he came there prepared to not really debate. And then he figured out that he had to. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you find that the people who are kind of most in command of their position aren't necessarily interested in in decimating the other person or 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 winning for the sake of winning. But they're really, you know, they're invested in advancing a perspective and especially scientists, actually. Absolutely. That the nature of science is to admit it's, you know, it's it's continually evolving. Um, But then I think one of the one of the big tells is also that somebody who doesn't who isn't truly confident in their position is most easily offended by having to move off of talking points. And, you know, have have and having to listen to another informed um, point of view. I'm not sure that I agree that that's what. I don't, I'm not sure that that's what offends them as opposed to they really are just so accustomed to not being challenged. They're, they're accustomed to being in a place where they get along with everybody because everybody agrees with one another. And um, it seems almost impolite to disagree. And, um, and, and now, now they're in a situation in front of a lot of people on a stage with with me moderating and kind of holding their feet to the fire and somebody in the other stage telling them they're wrong. And I've seen that happen where, where you get the feeling that the person almost takes offense that their views are being challenged. I, I want another really interesting example of that. The extreme example of that was we had a military general on one time and he was entirely debating. He was entirely used to everybody saying yes to him. Sure. And he did not, take well to being debated with. And he definitely did not take well to my telling him that he had to, you know, change the, you know, do better than, than what he was doing. Cause I was calling him out and he, and he, he wouldn't make eye contact with me because I, I think it was, he just considered it insubordination that, that uh, I was, that I was standing up to him. Insubordination. Yes. That would have been applicable in that, in, in that yeah, instance. Yeah. Uh, so gi- given that, um, tell me how your selection process for um, uh, inviting participants has evolved over the years, given the fact that, you know, you don't want to just have rooms of people who are, who, who are listening, who are used to uh, being agreed with, uh, but people who um, can really support their side while being respectful of another side, how has the the guest uh, selection process evolved? Hmm. John, you want me to take that? Or? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, it actually, uh, our selection process hasn't changed that much, but the appetite and willingness to debate has. 
So what we go through is a pretty uh, in-depth research process just to figure out where, where the two sides really shake out. Uh, the, the leading voices on these two sides, you know, this isn't just scrolling through Twitter, um, and reading the latest op-ed and saying, oh, these two people disagree on this. There are much deeper, more nuanced arguments in each one of these topics and they're complex and they require, we have researchers and producers that spend a lot of time reading studies, reading white papers, reading books, listening to podcasts, watching videos. And there's kind of a qualification process that's happening behind the scenes before we would even send an invitation okay. to, to a debater so that we're going out to them with a really educated, a pretty educated guest, a pretty informed guest that they're going to debate a certain side and take a certain position on something. But we want to then have an interview with them just to gauge their comfort level in taking this on. Who would a worthy opponent be? Um, you know, what are, in terms of framing, we've come up with this kind of framing. How do they feel about that? You know, are we, are we in the ballpark? Normally we are, just to our credit. Um, but what has happened over the years, especially recently, is, is people are, I think, a lot less um, inclined to go debate. I mean, there's always been people that just won't debate. You know, you go out to certain talent, certain authors, journalists, sorry, I don't debate. I just don't, it's not my format. I don't want to do it. I don't like the confrontation, um, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that love to debate. We have debaters that have been there 10 times that can't wait to take on an issue that love the idea of, of taking something on directly and love John. In particular, they come on the show because he's impartial and unbiased and he's fair and they, they know they're going to get a, a fair shake. Uh, but lately, especially the last couple of years, we we're going out sometimes with four to five times as many invitations as we ever have. Um, and, and I do think that there's, you know, I think that there's a moment in time people are worried about cancel culture. They're worried about, you know, being held to the fire. They're worrying about being seen as even if they change their mind on something that that's negative. Sure. Um, and so sure. it's just, it's a little bit different. It takes a little more convincing. Um, it takes more work to pull together a, 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 a panel nowadays. It's just kind of a different landscape. I don't know. Maybe John, do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I, I, I have the same sense. And, and again, I think, as you said, there were always people who just wouldn't debate because I often, they would take the position, well, there, there really isn't another side. I don't want to, I don't want to give a platform to the other side because the other side is so invalid. I heard that 15 years ago. Um, now I think we hear it a lot more often that I, I, you know, or, or sometimes we'll ask people who, who, who would you like to debate against? And the person they suggest is somebody to actually agree with. So they're not actually talking about a debate. Well, you, you had mentioned, uh, Clea, you had mentioned cancel culture. You actually had a program around cancel culture and just some of the more recent topics that were debated um, on the on the show. Um, you know, you were dealing with should COVID emergency aid uh, be discontinued. There was a uh, a really interesting conversation around Ukraine very early on in the um, the the war. Conversation around gene editing, and then you know, is true love a myth? <laughs> there's a there's a pro and con debate right there. Um, how do you go about choosing what your subjects are going to be, and how much of it uh, is sort of dependent on? 
you know, what's grabbing headlines in a particular time period versus what are more maybe uh, evergreen issues where, you know, we may not ever come to a conclusion on this, but these topics remain ripe for debate. You're speaking the language we use internally all the time. This one will be an evergreen. This one's topical. This is topical. This one will be an evergreen. Uh, you know what? Actually, that has evolved the most over the years, I would say, for for Intelligence Squared, how we choose these topics. Um, we workshop these, you know, first on our editorial team. And then we are uh, we're taking suggestions from our listeners. Uh, we have, you know, a, a group of advisors that submits ideas to us all the time. Um, but really, we're. I would like to say that we are kind of the debate ninjas. Uh, we have an idea. We know right away if something is going to be able to survive the scrutiny of a debate and not everything is designed to be debated. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we could go we could talk about that for a very long time, just where we draw the line also. But what we're what we're thinking about, just certain things are panel discussions. Certain things are one on one conversations. They're not, right. you know, they're not for debates. Yeah, like um, asteroids. You know, people, somebody will say, I just read this really amazing article on asteroids. You guys should do a debate about asteroids. And, yeah. and, we'll, <laughs> and we'll, we'll say, well, what's the debate? And they'll scratch their head. Well, I'm, I'm not sure, but there's got to be something. You know, what they really exactly. want is a panel, a panel discussion. Sure. Exactly. They well, the want to learn about asteroids. They want it to hit us or miss us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had uh, one, one suggestion came in that was so funny. It was a, you should do a debate on war crimes and i'm like okay so is there a side in favor of war crimes is that (laughs) you know just kind of missing the point of of the debate so um you know so but you know i think increasingly there's just a lot uh there's a lot more it feels like that's very timely now that Mm -hmm. people are are dealing with two sides covid for the last year and a half is probably (laughs) Um, the most significant example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we find the dimensions in those topics where there's a lot of daylight and there's a very clear division and we can frame it in a sharp resolution um, and make it debatable. You I think know, another thing, I, I, I think another thing that has affected the balance between evergreen and topical is that we've, we've definitely uh, increased the number of programs we do and shortened the lead time up to them because we're not on a stage in a theater having to sell tickets and print programs and fly debaters in from around the world. And there were debates that we did that would take six months of preparation and a a debate that's six months out almost has to be an evergreen topic. You can't, we, you know, if we, 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 right now we would, in that model, we would not be planning a debate for next January on Ukraine because we wouldn't know where we are, but we've, we've, transformed during the pandemic to be much more light of foot by going audio only in a lot of cases uh, and digital only only in every case, which means um, a much shorter lead time and a much higher opportunity to be topical. So talk to me a little bit about the really intriguing way that you involve listeners um, uh, with the debates in terms of getting their feedback and gauging uh, what which side they're gravitating toward and and also um, uh, measuring uh, which side they think won. Talk about the rationale behind doing that, if you would, and uh, and what kind of responses you have uh, received that were notable um, over the years. Yeah. The rationale for the win or lose model or. Well, just that level of uh, listener engagement. 
Um, well, debate, you know, we started out as this Oxford style debate series, which is even when when John started out, he was he was moderating panels that had three debaters on each side. So you had seven voices on stage, which is a lot of voices. If you're now if you're listening to a podcast or a radio show. Excellent. Um, so we we paired it back to a two on two model and did that for a really long time. Uh, we did, you know, two teams of two in a sharply framed Oxford style motion, which is a statement that you're for or against. And, you know, we found it really hard to grow with those constraints. Mm-hmm. And we also the, the world changed, you know, it just became more polarized and we felt like we were leaning into the polarization. So we actually developed some new models like the unresolved model. Um, but that Oxford style model is totally kind of dependent on a vote. I mean, at the Oxford Union, you know, you vote at the beginning by a show of hands and again at the end. And we are emulating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the positive thing about that is we have 10 years plus of of data uh, that shows how people came into a debate when they left, what percentage of them changed their minds. But increasingly, um, and John and I have talked a lot about this lately and the team at Intelligence Squared, um, you know, there's so much skepticism around expertise right now and trust in the media. And the vote is almost undermining the impact of the arguments where it used to be such a crucial part, like a narrative arc to the show, a beginning, a middle and end. And we had a winner and it was still in the spirit of this competitive, you know, uh, positive experience. And now it's rather alienating the idea that somebody wins and loses. And people are kind of taking that as an opportunity to say, my ideas are better or worse. Mm -hmm. And that's really not what we're about. So, um, you know, we want to engage people around these topics. Um, We want people to weigh in. We want to hear what they think. We want them to to learn something. Um, And we want to be a vehicle for, for helping people um, have an open mind because mm-hmm. that's kind of the only way that we're going to solve problems if we're open to hearing somebody else's point of view and, and different perspectives. And be willing to change your mind without feeling that you were hoodwinked or it was a sign of weakness or something like that. And we don't want just we don't want just leaders who are able to do that. We want voters who are able to do that as well. Absolutely, because one would think that if if voters sort of held themselves to a higher standard of examining issues then the leaders might have to follow because voters would would come to the conclusion that what you just showed me is not a debate. You, you know, you 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 threw talking points at each other for 90 minutes and essentially condescended to me by not going into the, you know, the nitty gritty. It's sometimes, you know, it's interesting, Claire, when you mentioned the um, uh, the outcome of like who won to be thinking of it in that binary way, the winner or the loser. And it almost sounds like the ideal intelligence squared listener is less interested maybe in who won or who lost, but comes away thinking, you know, being able to say, I hadn't thought of that or I hadn't, you there know, I hadn't looked that's, at it. That's, that that's, that's totally, Michael, that's totally what, what how we see and how we think about it. The, the vote is re- I've always felt the vote is relatively meaningless. Mm-hmm. It's a nice piece of showbiz, but it's entirely dependent on who happens to show up for the debate on a given night in a given city. You could take the same program 
different audience on a different night in a different town and get a very, very different vote. But the, the point is the, is the process. And I know I, I'm not saying, uh, you know, it's an everybody gets a trophy world at all. I, I, that's, that's not the point. The point, <laughs> the point is that the, the, uh, the, the, the purpose of the conversation is to test each other out, to, to push each other to the limit of your ideas, to see just how good your ideas are. I, I respect debaters who in the middle of a debate will concede a point. It happens. They'll say to their opponent, you know what? You're right. And, and sometimes that's, that might actually be a tactical move to win the audience's respect. It certainly wins my respect, but I think it really happens. So the, the win-lose thing has, been, uh, has seemed to have been our bread and butter, but I think we're increasingly understanding that it's probably not. Uh, it's, it's a nice bit of razzle-dazzle, but it's really, <laughs> really, it's really not the point. Sure. Yeah, it's, def- it's definitely not the point. It's um, I think what's what what is interesting, though, is understanding what influenced somebody to change their mind mm-hmm. or which arguments really influenced their thinking about something or reinforced their current position. Just because you don't change your mind doesn't mean arguments weren't, you know, weren't, weren't really great and compelling and meaningful. Well, absolutely. Um, and, and plus, I, you know, we we don't really live in a world of black and white. We live in a world of shades of gray. And mm-hmm. to, you know, to insist that I've got to be 100 percent correct and you've got to be 100 percent wrong. Just, you know, you don't go anywhere. And maybe I'm just feeling too optimistic because I saw Sean Penn talking to uh, Sean Hannity last night. And I, you know, I was waiting to see pigs fly this morning. But, you know, uh, <laughs> anything is possible. John, you had mentioned a little while back about some pivots that you all had to do. Um, as every uh, media, pretty much every media organization had to during COVID. Uh, So uh, either of you can talk a little bit more about that and then maybe what that pivot has has led to Intelligence Squared, perhaps a new direction that Intelligence Squared might be taking uh, in response to the pivot that you had to make during COVID. We did our first, our last live debate in on March fourth, twenty twenty, at Stanford University, and five weeks later we did our first digital only debate with technology that we were trying out at the time and have since rejected, uh, with uh, a format that we were trying at the time and have since rejected, with with bells and whistles that we were trying out at the time and since rejected. We went through a lot of a learning process, a, a real learning curve during twenty twenty to figure out how to do what we do without exposing ourselves to the pandemic, without exposing our debaters to the pandemic, and most importantly, without an audience, how is that gonna work? And, and we, have, we have figured it out. Um, uh, I would say we're still figuring it out, but I would say that we're now 98% of the way there. We've, we've settled on a model that we've been now using consistently for several months and we really like. What it comes down to, yes, I am a guy doing a podcast in my basement um, <laughs> in company with other people, but it certainly does not sound like that. Um, we, we put a lot of thought into professionalizing the sound. Um, we have a team, a technical team that is really smart and did a lot of figuring out how to make it work. We even do this, not just with sound, but with video in a lot of cases, we we have created kits, camera kits that we ship out to our debaters with instructions and guidance on how to set them up. So there's a consistent look. Um, we have relied a lot on UPS and FedEx to get our, our product together. It, it's worked. I mean, I think our audience has grown, Clea, has it not during the pandemic? Yeah, and, um, yeah no, I mean, reach, 
reach, you know, we we're now uh, on more NPR stations than we've ever been um, in, in the history of the organization. Yeah, I read um, that you're on two, uh, 230 public radio stations nationwide, in addition to the podcast, which is on well, all of the podcast uh, platforms. Yes. So actually that number is way up. So that was a 2020 number. Now we're on 325 as of the end of, yeah. Um, end of 2021. So, you know, being really responsive to the debates unfolding in real time was kind of a game changer for us. Mm -hmm. Um, as John was saying, you know, the model used to be five debates in the fall, five debates in the spring was big live production. Um, now we're, and you just couldn't, we just couldn't respond to, you know, a Supreme court nominee. Or, you know, a major, uh, you know, a major, I guess, change happening in a, in a policy issue. Let's just mm-hmm. say I'm trying to think of one that we would have recently done. I mean, even COVID, COVID issues, the, the um, vaccine, the booster, the ethics of the booster shot or patents or passports. These are debates happening in real time. And the intelligence squared of a few years ago, we couldn't have just put on rented a venue and, you know, sold tickets and put on a show that way. Right. So we really, yeah, we really innovated, um, the content and in order to produce that way, we had a lot of stuff to figure out. I mean, I'm sure that you, Michael have a lot of experience with this too. Um, but you know, we're, we Certainly are on a first being the guy in the basis. basement doing a podcast part. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you know, we, we've, we've had so many, we really are on a first name basis with our UPS and FedEx carriers. <laughs> um, you know, we like, you know, they see us coming with a little cart and five camera kits, which are in huge boxes. Um, and they're like, here we go. Amy, our chief of staff, um, had to, you know, figure all that stuff out. They'll but, be looking um, for their executive producer credits soon. they're they're deserving of it in a way but uh you know it's john john i think had you know one of the biggest changes for us was getting feedback from a live audience and yeah our audience has really grown um more radio stations more podcast downloads more video views all that stuff it's great newsletter subscribers there's a real appetite for the for our content now it's different than it used to be but the experience that we have is so profoundly different. John used to read the room and play to the audience and, you know, take live questions. And John, I mean, you know, you being in your study, luckily not, not the basement. (laughs) Um, But, you know, how, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I think people would be interested in hearing how. Well, it was, it was was a big change for me. Yeah, I, I when when I when I joined back in 2008, I need needed to learn how to do this. I needed to learn how to harness a conversation involving at that point six people. Eventually, brought it down to four. How to keep it moving along? How to keep it on point? Um, and um, how to make it keep it interesting and fun? And I do mean fun, engaging, um, but also serious. And the the secret ingredient I found was the audience that um, I became the audience is representative to these debaters and they, and the debaters made sure the debaters understood that. So um, when I wanted to, to sort of pull somebody into line, I made it clear that at that moment I was expressing something that was probably going on with the audience. If I, if I were to say, you know, Bob, you've made that point over and over and over again without actually addressing 
what your opponent is saying, there would be a rumble through the audience of agreement. And that was a very, very powerful tool to use. Um, I also used humor a lot in order to be able to do tough things with the debaters. So I was very self-deprecating. I, mean, I don't know how many times I said on stage, we could probably go back, find in the transcripts. I would say, guys, I'm really not that smart and I don't understand what you're talking about. Can you, can you try it again? And in that case, I'm thinking that they're not being clear to the lay person. Um, but I didn't want to say that. I, I said, I'm not that smart. And the audience would laugh at that. I didn't care. Um, but that it, it developed a symbiotic relationship between me and the audience, which is all gone now. It's it, it doesn't exist in my house. And, you know, we're pre-taping debates just with uh, the debaters. So that's been a change for me. And um, Clay and I have talked about this a lot lately, that that was sort of my that was a set of muscles that I developed as a debate moderator that aren't really relevant in the same way. So I'm working on, uh, I'm working on different muscles now that I think will also um, intersect with some, some changes we're making in the whole style of what we do. We're, we're moving more towards a conversational kind of debate where it, it will make more sense for me to, to be interactive with the debaters uh, not, not merely to keep them within the guardrails of the rules of the debate, not merely to keep time, but to reflect on some of what I'm hearing them saying as a human being, um, to, to, to bring to them in a, in a more direct way, the point, you know what, that doesn't make much sense to me. Whereas before I was saying, I'm really not that smart. Can you explain it? I'm much more likely in a conversational way to just say, I don't really get that. Can you explain it to me? So I'm kind of processing th that new, new style of interaction with the whole program, I think. You had, you had mentioned uh, shipping um, uh, video equipment uh, to, to guests. Uh, is there a, a televised component um, of Intelligence Squared? Over the years, we've had multiple uh, broadcast partners um, and distributors. So PBS, Newsy, Bloomberg. Um, I mean, BBC. we've streamed on which one? One. The BBC at one point. BBC. Uh, you know, we currently are. We have a, a, an entire collection of debates that you can stream on Wondrium, which is the great courses right now. So we always have, uh, you know, video production and. Uh, also being a, a video show sure. has always been very much part of what we do. Um, you know, getting to look, everybody had to deal with the pandemic and production value and production quality um, changing rapidly. The standards of what, you know, news organizations of <laughs> what we would have considered acceptable were completely, completely changed. You know, you really were in everybody's living room. Audio quality, I think, has deteriorated pretty significantly, even though I think it's back up. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, what we tolerate now in terms of video is kind of extraordinary. It's stuff that you just wouldn't see done before. Um, but early on in the pandemic, I was really committed to and still am to a large degree to um, preserving our our high production value. You know, we've always uh, gone through great lengths to bring a really quality streaming product um, and high quality video. These are long form conversations. And if it isn't, if it isn't uh, visually engaging, 
or if it isn't a high quality visual product, you're likely not going to capture somebody um, sure. for that full hour or hour and a half. Right. So um, we maintained that during COVID. We we tried all these cameras that you can, you know, control room in from the Bahamas. And, <laughs> um, and you know, we have a tons of laptops set up, mirroring feeds and capturing Zooms, and we're still getting an ISO feed. And um, these camera kits that go out are actually recording in 4K, we're able to, um, we're now able to control hop in and take control of them in terms of blocking the shot of our guests, um, and, and have delivered a product that was high quality enough that we aired a whole series of virtual debates, uh, on Bloomberg during the presidential election. So that was kind of a feather in our cap that yeah. we got our, we, we got our production quality to be top notch enough in our, you know, various bedrooms and living rooms and basements, um, that it was still broadcast quality for an hour long debate program. Fantastic. I have one last question for each of you. When you kind of, uh, blue sky, your, um, you know, who's on your wish list in terms of, I would, we would love to have this person debate this person about this topic, you know, um, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley are both dead, so they're 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 not around. <laughs> <laughs> and poor PJ um, O'Rourke just joined them. I know. Um, I I love that documentary, by the way. If yeah, best if of enemies. Haven't best of enemies? Yes, that was actually like an Intelligence Squared school outing. You know, sure. um, for us one afternoon. Is the, yeah, the staff. Or you could have Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer, but you know, the, somebody's going to get punched. Uh, you know, I would really love to see former heads of state, former presidents actually do in a real debate. I know it's a total pipe dream. <laughs> um, it's, you know, getting getting our elected officials to debate, debate is pretty much impossible. There's just too much at stake. Uh, but but that would be for me kind of a, a dream is having a, a former president. Current presidents way too much to ask, obviously. Right. Um, or, or presidential candidates really taking on the issues in a way that's meaningful for the public, because we we really didn't get to see that that from them um, during the election. Yeah, it would be interesting to get people who have who who made important decisions uh, during historical crises who are still alive to come on and defend the decisions they made against somebody else who would be a critic of it. You know, the, uh, the McNamara documentary that was made several years ago was not a debate, but it was, he was being pushed about decisions he had sure. made. Fog of war. Uh, I'm not sure it would end up being a debate though, because I think in retrospect, when people are out of office, they are more willing to say I made mistakes and to explain why they made them. But I, it would be an interesting model an interesting thing to try to approach. Yeah. Well, you have created a just a just such a compelling and fascinating uh, venue for engaging and topical conversation. And it's so fully accessible also. You know, this isn't there's there's nothing dry and stuffy and off-putting about any of the conversations. They suit that they serve that need of the listener who says, I've heard you say that 50 times on 50 different programs. Get to the next thought. And your venue sort of demands that they do that. So it's a it's a huge public service. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank each of you for your time chatting with me today. I have been talking with Clay O'Connor, who is the CEO of Intelligence Squared US, and John Donvan, who is the host and the moderator. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. It's great. 